Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So please forgive my voice if I'm slightly hoarse. I've recovered from a case of COVID, and while I feel completely better, I still have slight laryngitis. So I've been working for several months on my series on the beginnings of World War One. My last lecture was on Germany, which is a very important subject because it's the country most often held responsible for the beginning of this war. But as I discussed in that lecture, the situation is much more complicated than that. And I posted that on Patreon for patrons only. So if you want to hear that, please go to the link in the description and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. But now this next lecture for the public will be The Origins of the First World War, Part 7, Belgium and Luxembourg. So it may sound a little surprising at first blush that I would have an episode on these two countries, which we don't ordinarily think of as major combatant states in the First World War. But you may associate at least Belgium somewhat with the First World War, if only as a battleground and specifically the region of western Belgium, known as Flanders, is still known even today as a site of much of the mass slaughter and tragedy of the First World War, such as in the famous Canadian Elegy, which has come to be a sort of touchstone for memory of the First World War, called In Flanders Fields. And also we may associate Belgium with the names of some of the famous battlefields, such as Ypres, Passchendaele, and the Marne. And this sort of tragic role of Belgium in the Great War is in keeping with a long historical pattern, where Belgium as a sort of open crossroads of Western Europe has often been turned into a battlefield for conflicts between other powers and nations. And for that reason, it's often been called the cockpit of Europe. But also beyond Belgium's sort of passive role as a site of much of the warfare of this great war, Belgium was also pivotal in the early escalation and outbreak of the war. And it played a critical role as a formerly neutral nation whose neutrality was violated as the war began, and a nation that was forced to decide whether to acquiesce to foreign demands to move troops across their territory or to resist in the name of their official neutrality. Now, much lesser known perhaps, but also important, is that these facts are also true of Luxembourg, which is a much smaller country that sometimes is just sort of overlooked as a, an insignificant microstate, but actually was very politically and militarily important in Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And so the violation of the neutrality of both Belgium and Luxembourg really began the war on the Western Front. And furthermore, it brought Great Britain into the war, which, as we'll see, has a special tie and relationship to Belgium. And for this reason, the violation of Belgium's neutrality was critical in turning the war, which might have just been a war on the European continent, into a global war involving not only Britain, but the overseas colonial empires and even other states and nations beyond Europe. 
So in order to understand why this war became the Great War and the First World War, we have to understand why Belgium and Luxembourg were neutral and why this neutrality was so crucial, both to those nations themselves and also to the great powers of Europe, especially Great Britain. So in order to understand this aspect of the story, we should talk about the origins and makeup of Belgium. So like Serbia and Germany, whom I've discussed before, Belgium was also a relatively new state. It was a creation of the 19th century. And as with Germany, it's really impossible to know exactly where to start the story of Belgium. There are so many disparate threads of the history of this region that did not come together, much less form a coherent nation-state until after 1800. But nonetheless, we can go back to the origins of this place name, Belgium. And the root of that name actually goes back to the title of an ethnic or tribal confederation that is mentioned in early Roman reports, particularly the reports of Julius Caesar on the Gallic Wars. And the name of this tribal grouping was Belge. And it seems that it was a sort of loose confederation of ambiguous ethnic nature, possibly Celtic or German or something else. Julius Caesar and other Romans after him basically grouped these Belgae into the larger umbrella group of the Gauls, who by and large were Celtic. However, Caesar also claimed that these Belgae actually came from a Germanic origin and that their ancestors had migrated from Germany westward into the northern end of Gaul. We don't know why he said that or why he thought that, and we don't know whether these Belgae were Celtic or Germanic or some mixture of both, or as some scholars, particularly linguists, theorize, neither, since there are arguments from linguistics for the existence of a distinct Belgic language that belonged to its own separate branch of the Indo-European language family, and that was neither Celtic nor Germanic. So the origins and ethnic nature of these tribes is really mysterious. But in the first and second centuries AD, the Romans conquered and incorporated this area into the larger region that they called Gaul. In particular, they called this province at the northern end of Gaul, Belgica. Now, early on, this province of Belgica really just comprised what we now know as the northern and northeastern edge of France, more or less the regions of Picardy, Champagne, Lorraine. But then, as Roman civilization gradually expanded and extended northward, and as the Roman frontier advanced northward, more areas were incorporated into Belgica, including regions that we today consider part of Belgium. And this sort of broad region of Belgica extended from a high hilly and mountainous area in the east that basically formed the boundary between Gaul and Germania, sloping down to lower riverine plains and eventually the seacoast in the west. And the economy of the area involved farming, fishing, and trade and travel on the rivers, especially the river Meuse, which flows more or less from west to east through the middle of this broad plain in what we now consider Belgium. 
So this broad area became really the northern edge of Roman civilization. And the province centered on a string of fortified towns running from east to west that formed a sort of defensive cordon for Gaul. And the immediate area was strongly Latinized, and after about 300, it became very Christianized, like other parts of the Roman Empire. North of this sort of defensive cordon, the rest of the Netherlands were really still more heavily Germanic and unromanized. So after about 400, as the Western Roman Empire rapidly disintegrated, this region of Belgica was invaded and occupied by Franks, this large Germanic group migrating and invading from the north. And it, in time, really became the main center and base of Frankish power and the growing Frankish kingdom. And you may know that the Emperor Charlemagne put his imperial capital at Aachen, which is really just at the eastern edge of what was considered Belgica, right on what's now the present-day border of Belgium and Germany. So this became a great center of Frankish and Carolingian power and civilization. But it then in the 800s was hit very hard by Viking raids, especially these low, flat plains with wide rivers. They were especially vulnerable to Viking raids and depredations. And in the breakup of the Frankish Empire, In the 840s, this whole region was put into the basket of middle Francia, the sort of middle slice of the empire that was assigned to one of the sons of Louis the Pious. But this kingdom of middle Francia also didn't last long and soon disintegrated. The southern area of middle Francia did hang on for some time and became the Duchy of Burgundy, which persisted as a somewhat powerful stable state in the south. But this northern area that we're talking about, this sort of broad sweep from from the mountains to the Meuse Valley and to the North Sea, which included historic Belgica, this broke up and disintegrated into a series of small duchies, counties, and other statelets, which coexisted and competed with one another. In the late 900s, they came to be gradually incorporated into the Holy Roman Empire, this sort of attempt to revive Carolingian power with its main base in Germany. And the Holy Roman Empire provided a sort of minimal umbrella of security and stability for trade and travel. And gradually, especially after 1000, several small regional states emerged as sites of trade and achieved a certain degree of prominence and commercial prosperity. And these included, most prominently, the duchies of Brabant and Limburg, the county of Hainaut, the prince bishopric of Liège, and most importantly of all, in the eastern end of the region, the county of Luxembourg, which was founded in 963, when a local potentate, the Count Siegfried, obtained the site of the ruins of a Roman fort on top of a rocky promontory with steep cliffs called the Bach. And Siegfried and his successors used these ancient Roman foundations to build a new castle and found a ruling dynasty that would control the area around the Bach for almost 500 years. And meanwhile, at the other end of what had been Belgica in the west was the county of Flanders, which comprised a large expanse of flat lands and river valleys with a wide coast on the North Sea and which included several sizable towns, such as Antwerp and Ghent, which became prosperous from trade 
and especially from the weaving industry. And these larger towns in Flanders became effectively autonomous, run by a prosperous merchant class, effectively independent of the landed nobility, a lot like the imperial free cities in Germany. Now, with time, the richest and most powerful of these towns to emerge in Flanders was Bruges, which became a member of the Hanseatic League and the main site of the processing of wool from the British Isles into cloth for the wider European markets. So these towns and cities and statelets around the lower Netherlands, or what had been Belgica, spoke a variety of languages, mainly forms of Dutch in the northern areas, especially Flemish in Flanders, and dialects of French or closely related regional languages, such as Wallon in Wallonia at the southern end of Belgica, and also some dialects of German in the east, especially in Luxembourg. So it was really a meeting place of several different linguistic spheres. So all through the Middle Ages, this whole region was still technically part of the Holy Roman Empire, but the empire never had much power or control on the ground. It was never a very unified or centralized empire, even within the heartland in Germany, and it was even weaker and more of just a nominal overlordship in this whole area of the Netherlands and Belgica. And imperial power declined even further after 1200, to the point that other rising Western states, particularly France and England, started trying to exert power and to infiltrate the small states and cities, trying to redirect their politics and trade into their own channels, whether French or English. England was the main supplier of wool, which was the biggest, most important raw material for industries in the Flemish towns. And so England had enormous leverage and influence in this region. But France had the advantage of a direct land border, and hence the ability to militarily threaten this whole region. In 1214, France openly attacked Flanders and defeated the army of the Flemish count, and the French forced Flanders to become a tributary state under French suzerainty, which it remained for several hundred years. Now, this was not even enough, though. The French further pressed their claims to control and overlordship, and in 1302, the French attempted to outright annex Flanders, reducing it to a royal province. But the Flemish resisted and won a stunning victory at the Battle of the Golden Spurs, which subsequently became part of both Flemish and Belgian national mythology. Nonetheless, the French continued to press their claims and exert more control. And in 1304, the French forced Flanders to accept harsh peace terms and to cede significant border territories to France. So as this was happening with Flanders, most of all, in the French line of fire, the other statelets to the east wanted to avoid falling to the same fate and coming under French control. And so they looked for allies, most especially, of course, to England, the other large power that was deeply interested in the region. And so many local rulers and potentates allied with both England and also with England's main ally on the continent, which was the Duchy of Burgundy to the south. So Burgundy was an ally of England and an enemy of the French crown, which carried on much of the Hundred Years' War against the French. 
And so some of these local counts and dukes and their sons and daughters married directly into the ruling house of Burgundy. And in the early 1400s, most of these small states in what we now know as Belgium and Luxembourg were gradually absorbed into the Burgundian domains through these marriage alliances. And under Burgundian domination, there was some return to prosperity. There was a rich merchant class that took advantage of the new trade and diplomatic connections on the continent and who patronized art. Flanders and the other southern low countries became the first region in northern Europe to bring the Renaissance from Italy to the north. They also founded a university at Leuven, which became a long-lasting major European university. However, in 1453, the French crown finally won the Hundred Years' War and defeated Burgundy. And so after this point, even the Duchy of Burgundy could not effectively defend this whole area of the Low Countries against the French without making more powerful allies. And so in 1477, Mary of Burgundy, the scion of the, the dynastic ruling house of Burgundy, came to the throne and immediately formed an alliance with the Habsburg family in Austria. And she married the Archduke Maximilian of Austria, who then a few years later became Holy Roman Emperor. And so after Mary's death, the region of Burgundy and this whole area of the Low Countries that had been incorporated into the Duchy of Burgundy, all of it became Habsburg dynastic territory as it was passed down to the heirs and descendants of Mary and Maximilian. And it remained a Habsburg dynastic domain in one form or another for the next 300 years. In the 1500s, the region experienced a time of great tumult socially and politically. So in 1549, the Habsburg emperor Charles V began reorganizing his extensive domains in Europe in preparation for abdicating. And for one thing, he grouped together all of these various low countries and zones of the Netherlands, all the way from Holland in the north down to Flanders and Luxembourg, into one consolidated state, which was called the 17 Provinces. And then six years later, in 1555, Charles abdicated the throne, and he split the Habsburg dynastic realms into two basic empires. And he gave the western half to one son and the eastern half to another. So the western half included Spain, as well as this new creation of the 17 provinces of the Netherlands. And so these were assigned collectively to Charles's elder son, Philip. And so, in effect, the Netherlands, and when I use this term, I'm including the whole Low Countries, what we now think of as the Dutch Republic, Belgium, and Luxembourg, this whole region of the 17 provinces, came to be ruled really in effect as a colony of Spain, run mainly by Spanish Habsburg officials. And under Spanish domination, they began to fall behind commercially, especially as compared to their great rival, England, which overtook them. 
And this situation led to great resentment against Spanish rule, which then soon began to combine also at the same time with religious ferment in the wake of the Reformation. And Protestantism made its way into the Netherlands and gained support, especially in these commercial cities. This was the typical sort of social environment that tended to embrace Protestantism. And it also tended to infiltrate and gain more ground in the north as compared to the south. But nonetheless, it did also become ascendant in some cities in the south, including Antwerp, Ghent, and Brussels, the growing capital of Brabant. In 1566, a wave of iconoclasm broke out with Protestant mobs breaking into churches and cleansing out what they considered idolatrous imagery like tapestries and statues. In 1567, a further wave of Protestant revolts broke out among the great cities all around the Netherlands and Protestant groups seized control of some of these cities. In response, the Spanish crown sent in a military commander, the Duke of Alba, to violently suppress these Protestant revolts. And in the process, he set up a so-called Council of Troubles, which arrested and tried rebel and Protestant leaders. And ultimately, it executed about a thousand Protestant leaders, while many others were forced to flee into exile. But nonetheless, this wave of persecution under the Duke of Alba failed to fully pacify the country. And even when it seemed as if most of these Protestant uprisings in the towns and in the north had been stamped out, dissatisfied troops, especially from Flanders, who had been underpaid and who had been shocked and dismayed by the level of violence and repression, they also began to mutiny, revolt, and join into this Protestant rebellion. Then another revolt broke out and seized control of Brussels in 1576. And after that, some cities that had already previously been pacified then broke out into revolt again, including, for example, Ghent, which was declared a Protestant republic in 1577. So this was becoming a sort of uncontrollable civil war, really, and the, the Spanish crown had little control over the situation. And what ended up happening is in 1579, the 17 provinces simply split. So seven northern provinces allied together and formed the so-called Union of Utrecht, which declared itself for Protestantism and for full independence from Spain. And they continued to fight against the Spanish crown, and this became the forerunner of what eventually became the Dutch Republic. But meanwhile, what about the other ten states, mainly in the south? Well, these ten states mostly worked out different negotiated deals with the Spanish, and so they made peace with the Spanish in which they maintained their right to self-government through local appointed and elected councils and estates with control over internal matters like taxes. But in return, they agreed to accept Spanish overlordship and to maintain Catholicism as the sole legal religion. So there was a basic split here between the more Protestant North and the more Catholic South, and the more fully independent North, and the autonomous South that still remained in some way under the Spanish crown. There were also some holdout Protestant towns and cities in the South that refused to make peace with Spain. But these were one by one besieged and subdued by Spanish forces, 
over the course of more than 20 years. Most importantly, Antwerp fell to Spanish forces in 1585, and the last remaining holdout in the south, Ostend, surrendered in 1604. So meanwhile, many Catholic refugees from the Dutch revolt who had fled from this warfare, they had gone abroad, especially to France in the south or to Germany in the east. And after the pacification of the southern Netherlands, many of these Catholic exiles and refugees returned to these cities that were now firmly under Spanish control. And this gave rise then to a devout and even militantly Catholic society that strongly embraced the Catholicism of the Council of Trent and the Catholic Reformation. And they accepted Spain once again as their overlord and as a bulwark defending Catholicism against the Protestant threat. But at the same time, this Catholic society in this region that came to be called the Catholic Netherlands or the Spanish Netherlands, this society also prized its autonomy and very jealously guarded its local self-rule against encroachments by the Spanish crown and also by the French and Germans. So in the 1600s, this region that, that came to be called, as I said, the Spanish Netherlands or the Catholic Netherlands, it was largely spared from the violence and destruction of the Thirty Years' War, which so devastated Germany. But meanwhile, at the same time, Spain went gradually into decline. And at the end of the Thirty Years' War, Spain was persuaded to accept and recognize the independence of the Protestant Netherlands, now known as the Dutch Republic. And as it experienced decline, financial problems, internal political problems within Spain, the Spanish crown began to remove its troops out of the Catholic Netherlands back to Spain. And this then left the Catholic Netherlands very vulnerable, caught now between the Protestant Dutch Republic to the north and France to the south, a large rising power. And both the Dutch to the north and the French to the south had designs or ambitions at controlling or even annexing the Catholic Netherlands. And so once again, this region became a battleground, a battleground for a long series of repeated wars between the Netherlands and France. And these wars eventually culminated in the early 1700s in a massive international war, the War of the Austrian Succession, which was fought largely within the territory of the Catholic Netherlands and caused a great deal of hardship and destruction. Now, as part of the diplomatic deal that finally ended this war of the Austrian succession, the combatant powers agreed to keep the Catholic Netherlands under Habsburg domination, but the region was transferred from the Spanish branch of the Habsburg domains to the Austrian branch. So now instead of being occupied and ruled from Madrid, they were ruled from Vienna. And in the mid and late 1700s, you may remember I talked about this in my lecture on Austria-Hungary, the Austrian state went through a series of aggressive reforms, especially culminating under the Emperor Joseph II. And these reforms were largely aimed at curtailing the power of the Catholic Church within the Habsburg Empire. And the Austrian government, in carrying out these reforms, began to encroach upon the internal autonomy 
of the Catholic Netherlands and to carry out aggressive and unpopular anti-clerical reforms and seizures of church property. And this began to infuriate the people of the Catholic Netherlands, who believed that this violated this autonomy that they had managed to wrest from the Spanish generations before. So there were already rising tensions and political discontent in the Catholic Netherlands by 1789, when, of course, the French Revolution broke out. And the example of the French Revolution then touched off similar riots and revolts in parts of the Catholic Netherlands, most of all in Brabant, that large central duchy around Brussels. And revolutionaries seized control of Brabant and expelled the Austrian government from Brussels. They then joined together with the, the Prince Bishopric of Liège and formed a revolutionary republic called the United States of Belgium. But this revolutionary United States of Belgium didn't last for very long because the revolutionaries had very different reasons for joining into this revolt. Some of them had been inspired by the secular republican ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity coming from France. Others were inspired by loyalty to the church against these secularizing Austrian reforms. And in this way, their, van their views were almost the opposite of the anti-clerical French Revolution. So this revolutionary co coalition soon split into feuding factions. There was the more radical and anti-clerical wing inspired by the French Jacobins, who were called Vonkists after their leader, Jans Franz Vonk. And meanwhile, there was the more conservative group, the statists, led by the Brabant lawyer, Henry van der Note. So in 1790, this revolutionary state gradually fell apart, and the Austrians naturally moved in their troops and reimposed control over the whole region. But that, too, only lasted for a few years, because in 1794, the French Revolutionary Republic went to war against Austria. And as part of their war against Habsburg Austria, they naturally invaded and occupied the Catholic Netherlands, the closest and most easily accessible Austrian territory. So in 1797, the Austrians were forced to make peace with revolutionary France, and they accepted this loss and ceded the territory to France. So the French revolutionary state annexed the entire region and abolished the old duchies and counties and set up a new centralized administration. Now, this annexation into France offered certain advantages. It allowed the people of Belgium, as some of them now called it, it allowed them access to an enormous new market, right? really the biggest economy in Europe. And the cities of this region again became great centers of trade, especially Antwerp and Brussels. And there was a huge new growth of small and handicraft industries. But at the same time, the French imposed often harsh and repressive rule. They abolished the University of Leuven, a traditional Catholic institution, and closed many other Catholic institutions as well. They imposed very heavy taxes and forced military conscription to support the wars of the Revolutionary Republic and later of Napoleon. So within the Catholic Netherlands, there was split reaction to French rule. The urban business class grew and enjoyed prosperity and in large part supported the French regime. But the rural peasantry and nobility opposed the French. And in 1798, there was a large uprising of the peasants in Flanders, which the French ruthlessly crushed. 
Now, this tension and split continued under French rule during the Napoleonic era. The cities continued to benefit from the ever-widening scope of French trade across Europe. But in 1814, Napoleon fell from power and was exiled to the island of Elba. But in 1815, he escaped from this exile, returned to France, seized control of French forces, and headed northward into the Netherlands, specifically to go to Brussels in order to attempt to establish a base of power there. But he was intercepted along the way by a coalition of German and British forces who finally and decisively defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, a village in Brabant just south of Brussels. So, you know, Waterloo has become one of the great famous names of of a world historical battle, but few people even know or remember that it was in Belgium. So subsequent to Waterloo, at the Congress of Vienna, the, the great powers stripped France of all of its conquered territories around Europe, including all of the Netherlands. And they set up a new independent so-called Kingdom of the Netherlands. And this would include both the Protestant North and the Catholic South, which had not been joined together as part of one single domain since the 1600s. And they installed William, the scion of the old Dutch House of Orange, as the king of this newly created Kingdom of the Netherlands. So William of Orange took up the throne of this new state as William I, and he promulgated the so-called Fundamental Law of Holland, and this sort of provisional constitution gave certain basic civic rights and freedom of religion. It created an elected parliament. So in many ways, this was seen as an enlightened and forward-looking constitution. But nonetheless, at the same time, the vote for elections in this parliament was highly restricted with high property requirements. Also, only nobles were allowed to be elected to the upper house of this parliament. Furthermore, the state was unitary with no local or regional self-rule, and the law stripped the Catholic Church of its traditional rights and prerogatives. And as this new constitution was put into effect, the government that it created quickly came to be dominated by an elite Protestant inner circle based in the North, and it imposed certain anti-Catholic policies onto the Southern Netherlands, including stripping the teaching of Catholicism out of the education system, and also it tried to suppress use of the French language in education and administration in favor of Dutch. So the Southern population under this new system was politically silenced, and there was a widespread sense of grievance against this Northern-dominated Orange government. But at the same time, the South was compensated to some degree by an economic boom. So the government encouraged the revival of the cloth industry, which had long been a staple of the Catholic Netherlands. And also it encouraged the expansion of new industries, such as glassworks and especially iron foundries, which were powered more and more by coal power drawn from mines in local coal deposits, especially in the so-called Pays Noir, or Black Country, around the town of Charleroi. A lot of the best state-of-the-art designs for modern wool factories and iron foundries were smuggled out of Britain and imported into the Catholic Netherlands by John Cockerill, a young entrepreneur from Lancashire in northern England. And 
in the late 1820s, more or less, Belgium became, in fact, the second country on earth to industrialize in the sense of creating a mass mechanized production economy driven by non-animal power. So it was the second after Great Britain to become an industrial country. And this new industrial growth and prosperity helped for a time to dampen the political discontent in the Catholic Netherlands. But at the same time, it also created new social classes, a large urban industrial proletariat, and also a growing urban business and professional class, both of which resented their political disenfranchisement and lack of political recognition to reflect their economic importance. And by the year 1830, this growing class grievance began to combine with regional resentment against northern Protestant-dominated rule. And all of this came to a head, you might say almost predictably, in August of 1830, when King William planned a massive birthday celebration, including a grand public procession in Brussels, this growing city at the heart of the Catholic Netherlands. And the king's own advisors warned him that there would likely be protests, and they persuaded him to cut back the celebrations and cancel the public procession and cut back to only a performance of a grand opera at the Opera House in Brussels. And the opera that was put on was a popular, innovative, new, grand drama from France titled La Mouette de Portici, meaning the the mute lady of Portici. And this was a grand opera on popular romantic themes, which was set against the backdrop of an uprising against tyrannical rule. And this, this fictitious rebellion was based on or inspired by an actual uprising in Naples in the 1600s against the Habsburg regime. So underground middle-class revolutionary groups around Brussels planned to hold a protest march anyway, even though the birthday procession had been canceled. They nonetheless secretly planned a gathering in the central plaza in Brussels, and furthermore, they made a plan to pack the opera house during the performance, and then when the male lead sings a stirring aria on patriotic themes with the title Amour Sacré de la Patrie, taken from the French Marseillaise, they would then get up and walk out of the opera house en masse and join the marchers in the street. And this is what happened in the evening of August 25th. And the protest march quickly burgeoned with thousands of poor industrial workers unexpectedly joining such that the march really spiraled out of control and became a massive riot. There were several days of rioting and looting through Brussels, and then waves of strikes and sabotages in factories and mines all across the southern Netherlands. Furthermore, revolutionary councils were able to seize control of the crucial city of Antwerp and Flanders. So in response, the king sent in the navy to bombard and try to subdue Antwerp, and he sent in the army to invade and try to reestablish control of Brussels. But the army was blocked by revolutionary street barricades, blocking off the narrow winding streets of the city and pulling the army into a sort of unwinnable quagmire in these labyrinthine medieval city neighborhoods. So eventually the forces in Brussels were forced to withdraw and 
relocate to fortresses along the internal border around Brabant, and this led to a kind of extended standoff between the revolutionaries controlling the cities and the army controlling the fortresses. The revolutionaries formed a provisional congress, which began to draw up a constitution, and they declared independence from the Netherlands as Belgium, drawing again on that ancient Latinate name on October 4th. So the other powers of Europe, particularly the five great powers of Britain, France, Prussia, Austria, and Russia, had to decide how to respond to this crisis, this revolutionary outbreak, and the standoff that had formed in Belgium. So they saw this as a threat of possible spreading chaos that might, that might spill beyond the borders of Belgium to the rest of Europe. And so in November, the great powers convened a conference in London to decide what to do. Most states, not surprisingly, wanted to support the king and help reimpose order. At first, only France wanted to recognize the independence of this new state of Belgium. There was probably some sympathy for fellow Catholics, sympathy for fellow revolutionaries. This Again, this 1830 revolution in Belgium was inspired by similar events going on in France. And they also probably hoped that a new independent state of Belgium would be more friendly to them diplomatically and commercially than the Netherlands was. So at first, France was really alone in this position. But then in time, over the course of weeks, it became clear that there was no way that King William's rule over Belgium could be restored without foreign military intervention. And none of the great powers really wanted to get pulled into that. And so firstly, Great Britain changed its mind and threw its weight in support of Belgian independence. And in some ways, it's not surprising that Britain came second here, because Britain also had deep prior history as a trading partner to the Catholic Netherlands, and it saw a possible advantage in creating a friendly buffer state and trading partner on the continent right in between Prussia, Austria, and France. This could provide a sort of diplomatic or even military foothold for Britain in the middle of this crucible of Western Europe. And so eventually, with French and British persuasion, the conference agreed to recognize Belgian independence, and specifically to recognize a new kingdom comprising all of the territory that had not been part of the Dutch Republic as of 1790. And so this meant a large swath of territory running all the way from the Flemish coast east to Luxembourg. But the stipulation of this recognition would be that this new state would have to be neutral in foreign affairs. The question now was, what would the government of this new state be? And it was clear that the great powers wanted it to be a monarchy. They didn't want to see another revolutionary republic. Monarchy was the respectable form of government. And so the British Foreign Secretary Palmerston tried to steer the Belgians to choose a new king who would be favorable to British interests. His first preference was the Prince of Orange, the son of King William. But it was immediately clear this was totally unacceptable to the Belgians and also to France. And so they turned to Palmerston's second choice, which was Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. So this was the prince of a minor German statelet who was also closely personally tied to Great Britain. How was that? Well, Prince Leopold was a widower. He had been previously married to Princess Charlotte, 
the daughter of King George IV of Great Britain. And when they were married, Charlotte was the heiress presumptive to the British throne. And so it was expected at that time that she would eventually become queen, and so Leopold would be prince consort of Britain. It seems that this was also a happy and loving marriage, and the king came to like and appreciate Leopold too. There was a personal relationship there. But the marriage was tragically cut short when Princess Charlotte died in childbirth, and the the infant child perished as well. And so that hope of her becoming queen with Leopold as her husband was extinguished. And the succession instead, instead ended up going to King George IV's younger brother, William. But nonetheless, King George IV still personally liked and felt a loyalty to Leopold and conferred upon him the title of His Royal Highness anyway, even though he never ascended to the position of Prince Consort. So in July 1831, Leopold was invited to take up the new Belgian throne as Leopold I. And he helped then to establish a new royal state with legitimacy in the eyes of all foreign states around Europe, but also with particularly close diplomatic ties to Britain in particular. Now, it so happens that this particular link between the ruling houses of Belgium and Britain was strengthened even further a few years later, because it happens that Leopold I's nephew, Albert, Prince of saxe coburg Goethe, in 1840 married Queen Victoria of Great Britain. And from that point onwards, once Victoria and Albert had children and heirs, the royal houses of Belgium and Britain were then blood-related. Okay, now, but once again, it's important that the very existence of this new state of Belgium was totally predicated upon their neutrality. This was the condition of their international recognition as a state. It was also fundamentally necessary. It was the fundamental basis of their security. This international agreement on Belgium's neutrality was the only way that this relatively small state surrounded by the major powers could possibly survive. And without this international agreement on neutrality, clearly Belgium would forever continue to be a battleground, repeatedly invaded and occupied, as it had been over and over again since the 1500s. So neutrality was vital for Belgium itself and for the international system. Now, meanwhile, through the 1830s, King William of the Netherlands still refused to accept this settlement. He did not accept the independence or neutrality of Belgium. He maintained his claim of sovereignty over the South, and he tried to invade Belgium again several times, until finally in 1839, the Dutch were forced to concede and accept Belgian independence. And they signed the so-called Treaty of London, which was a very complex compromise, where they recognized Belgium, but only with several territories taken away. So some small border regions were removed from Belgian control and reassigned, some of them to the Netherlands, some to France, some to the German Confederation. And most important of all, there was a critical territorial change in the east, where the large county of Luxembourg was split in two. The western part of Luxembourg was accepted and recognized as part of Belgium, but the eastern part, which includes that very powerful castle on top of so-called Bach, the high promontory surrounded by cliffs, 
this region was separated out and reestablished as a separate Grand Duchy, ruled by King William of Orange as Grand Duke. So while this was technically a separate state and not part of Belgium or the Netherlands, it was in a so-called personal union, where its government was under the control of the King of the Netherlands. And this gave rise then to a very complicated, strange, negotiated arrangement, where the civil government of Luxembourg was in the hands of the Dutch, while meanwhile its security and foreign affairs were under the control of Prussia, and its security was guaranteed by Prussia and the castle of Luxembourg was garrisoned with 5,000 Prussian troops. And this sort of complicated compromise was necessary because of Luxembourg's great strategic military importance. It was the most highly defensible site in the middle of Western Europe, and it's sometimes been called the, the Gibraltar of the North. It was this very strategically useful site which had to be put under this complex arrangement as part of ensuring the balance of power among the great powers. So this basic map with the independent Kingdom of Belgium and then this Grand Duchy of Luxembourg under the, the Dutch crown, this would be then the status quo for about the next 50 years. And in that time, society and politics within Belgium under this neutrality arrangement went through a period of rapid change and tumult. So Belgium continued to boom economically after becoming fully independent. It benefited from a prolonged peace and from a low tax and military burden thanks to its neutrality. The cloth industry expanded, benefiting from cheap imported wool and also now locally grown cotton and flax as well. And Belgium became the premier supplier of cloth to Europe. In 1835, King Leopold I sponsored the construction of the first railway in continental Europe. And it started as just a short line from Brussels to Mechelen in the north. But the rail system then grew rapidly and connected mining and manufacturing towns. And it became the first template really for railways all across Europe and even in other parts of the world when they began to build rails later in the 1800s. By the 1840s, the Meuse River, which again runs more or less east-west across the southern part of Belgium, the largely French-speaking southern region of Belgium, the Meuse River became the artery of a major industrial corridor, running from Mons in the west near the French border to Liège and Viviers in the east, and which came to be called the Sillon Industriel, or Industrial Furrow. Now, even as the country and its economy boomed, politics continued to be very contentious, with deep regional and ideological divisions, especially over the role of the Catholic Church, and these divisions came to be overlaid with a growing class divide as well. The country had fiercely partisan politics, reminiscent in many ways of France, but sometimes managed effectively by centrist and reformist coalitions that made concessions to social welfare, much like the government in Germany. So as for the dynamics of these regional and class divides, there was friction over the use of languages. So Flemish was the most widely spoken language in Belgium. But in the south, there were many French speakers and also related local languages like Wallon and Picard. 
and there were clashes over which language to use in schooling and public administration, especially in Brabant, in the middle of the country. Now, under Dutch rule, previously, before 1830, Flemish had had the upper hand, and French was aggressively suppressed. But then the situation reversed after independence, especially as the new country had close trade ties to France. So this led then eventually to a Flemish regional movement that sought to beat back encroachment by French and to protect the use of Flemish. And this led to a tense standoff that lasted through much of the mid-1800s between camps favoring French and Flemish. Now, this divide intercombined and interacted then with religious and ideological divides, where rural areas of Belgium were generally more devoutly Catholic, while the cities became increasingly secular. So all of these divisions were carefully negotiated and parties balanced against one another through the reign of Leopold I until that king died in 1865 and he was succeeded by his son who came to the throne as Leopold II. And under under the reign of this second king, these social tensions intensified and in some cases began to spiral out of control. So in the 1870s and 80s, the main divide became liberal versus conservative, where camps formed over questions like the school and university curriculums. And these different camps coalesced then into a conservative Catholic party and a fiercely secular liberal party. And the contention remained partly under the surface until it came to a head in 1879, at which point the liberals felt confident enough in their political clout to launch a secularizing reform campaign in the school system. And this led then to a powerful Catholic backlash, and the Catholic Party eventually won this political contest in 1884, and they basically dominated Belgian politics for the next 30 years. Now, once this so-called school divide was more or less settled in the Catholics' favor in 1884, it became class divides, that actually took over and dominated the rest of the 19th century. So aggrieved workers in the mining and industrial areas, especially in the South, formed a large union movement that ultimately overtook and displaced the Liberal Party as the main opposition force. And in the mid and late 1880s, a recession inflamed much of the discontent among the industrial working class, and unions began to demand better pay, better working conditions, and crucially, the right to vote. So non-property holders, including this growing mass of industrial workers, could not vote. In 1885, the unions grouped together and formed the Belgian Workers' Party. Now, with this rising challenge from the Workers' Party, the Catholic, the governing Catholic Party, made some limited moves to improve the treatment of workers. And in 1887, they banned the payment of workers in kind, especially in in the form of food, instead of in cash. In 1889, they set up councils to mediate workers' disputes in the mines and factories. And in 1892, they outlawed child labor. But really, these reforms were inadequate to satisfy the workers' expectations, and they continued to resent having no vote or direct voice in the political process. So in 1893, the Belgian Workers' Party issued a demand for universal male suffrage, and the Catholic Party rejected this request, and so in response, the Workers' Party called a general strike, 
which then swept much of the country and created chaos and paralysis across much of Belgium. So the militias were called in to brutally attack and suppress the strikers and marchers on the streets of Belgian cities. And many observers, including Marx himself, remarked that the Belgian government seemed to be exceptionally violent in suppressing worker resistance. After several months of chaos and fighting, the government finally gave in and passed a reform bill which allowed for all male citizens to vote. But it was not really full universal male suffrage because it weighted different citizens' votes differently based on age, wealth, and education level. And for this reason, the Catholic Party was able to remain in power. And the Belgian Workers' Party temporarily backed down, but then later, after 1900, called several more general strikes to demand a reform respecting the principle of one man, one vote. Also in response, starting in 1894, the Catholic Party began instituting a social welfare system to try to ameliorate the conditions of the working class. So in 1894, they instituted sickness compensation. In 1896, worker safety rules and accident compensation funds. And then after 1900, a series of new programs, including old age pensions, mandatory time off and overtime pay, and state support for workers' housing, savings banks, and mutual aid societies. So all of these reforms collectively managed to diminish the social unrest in Belgium and to create a kind of uneasy internal peace within Belgian society. But as the, these reforms that the Catholic Party instituted under great pressure, as they were sort of creating a new negotiated consensus within Belgium, meanwhile, international events abroad, especially the sudden rise of Germany and the increasing imperial race, drew both Belgium and Luxembourg into international disputes and conflicts and began to really strain and challenge their traditional position of neutrality. So what were some of these international tensions and what effect did they have on Belgium and Luxembourg? Well, firstly, in 1865 and 66, Prussia, under Otto von Bismarck, engaged in a diplomatic fight with Austria, as I discussed in my, in my last lecture about Germany. And this dispute eventually led to a war, which had been Bismarck's intention. Now, as this diplomatic fight between Prussia and Austria was escalating, France, under Napoleon III, offered to the Prussians to remain neutral in this fight. And that was a significant offer because their traditional ally was Austria. So this was a significant olive branch, you could say, from Napoleon of France to Bismarck in Prussia, offering to remain neutral in this intra-German fight. In return for this favor, Bismarck unofficially offered to allow France to exert their political control over Belgium and Luxembourg. So again, this was the sort of common imperial logic of the concert of Europe in this era, right? I allow you to dominate some region, to claim a sphere of influence, and in return you have to let me extend my sphere of influence somewhere else. So this was the sort of understood unofficial bargain between France and Prussia, that Prussia could assert itself as the dominant power in Germany if in return France 
could exert their control over Belgium and Luxembourg. And the implication was that the French would make Belgium into a kind of client state under French suzerainty. And as for Luxembourg, they might even try to annex it outright if they could manage to obtain it from the Dutch. So, pursuant to this deal in 1867, Napoleon offered a large sum of money to King William of the Netherlands, who was in debt, to buy Luxembourg. But unexpectedly, before this deal could be finalized, before this purchase could go through, Bismarck intervened and objected. And he did so partly because, as this deal came to be known publicly, there was a great outcry in the press in Germany, with German nationalists condemning this deal as a threat. It represented, in their view, France encroaching upon German lands and seizing a critical border stronghold that they could potentially use against Germany. So there was outrage within Germany, and Bismarck intervened and objected and refused to allow this purchase of Luxembourg. And so as a result, the concert of Europe was thrown into a kind of tailspin, and there was a great fear among the great powers that this dispute could lead to a war. So they did what they always did at this time. They called a conference. The conference was held in London. And at this conference, the French were basically persuaded to back down. They agreed not to try to purchase or annex Luxembourg so long as the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg was fully demilitarized and Prussian troops were pulled out. So this was done. And in 1867, as the Prussians withdrew, they demolished the enormous fortress of Luxembourg. So the results of this crisis were that the the dispute was diffused. It did not lead to war. Luxembourg was entirely demilitarized and hence from that point forward was completely dependent upon its neutrality and recognition of its neutrality for its safety. Now that Luxembourg was no longer as great a military asset, it was able then to get more complete home rule. So the Dutch were embarrassed as the world found out that they were willing to (laughs) sell Luxembourg for a pile of money. And having lost face so severely, they then ceded a great deal of power in Luxembourg to the elected parliament. And from that point forward, the government ministries in Luxembourg had to have the support of the Luxembourgish parliament. They couldn't just be appointed and opposed by the crown. Now, furthermore, Luxembourg later gained complete independence in 1890, and this was due to an accident of dynastic succession. So in 1890, King William III of the Netherlands died, and with him the House of Orange finally died out. At least all male lines of the House of Orange died out. According to the laws of Luxembourg, the Grand Ducal throne then had to pass out of the House of Orange and to a distant relative from Germany, who then came to Luxembourg and took the throne as Grand Duke Adolf. So now, in effect, from this point onward, Luxembourg was a fully independent, albeit very small, duchy with effective home rule which at the same time was totally dependent on the international balance of power for its safety and security.
After that point from the 1890s into the early 1900s, the government of Luxembourg promoted industrialization. A small steel industry began to form. They also promoted new ideologies of patriotism, and they promoted the use of Luxembourgish, which previously had just been basically seen as a Western dialect of German, just the local dialect of German, that if you if you listen to it, you can hear recordings on YouTube of people speaking in Luxembourgish. You know, to me, as someone who's sort of uh, basically familiar with German, to me it sounds like sort of in between German and Dutch. But in the 1890s, the, the government of the Grand Duchy began to standardize and promote Luxembourgish as a national language and as the basis for a sort of distinct identity for this newly independent country. And these programs continued then through the reigns of Adolf and his successor, William, while internal politics began to divide and polarize within Luxembourg in very similar ways to Belgium, basically along lines of class and also of religion with Catholic and secular camps. And power came to be contested in the parliament mainly between liberal, conservative, and socialist workers' parties. Again, a lot like the same dynamics going on in Belgium. And disputes over control of schooling and the curriculum emerged. And these eventually came to a head in 1912 when the Grand Duke William died and the throne passed to his daughter, the young Grand Duchess Marie Adelaide, who was very conservative. And in her first act on the day that she came to the throne, her very first action was to veto a bill that aimed to reduce the role of Catholic priests in the education system. So you can see similar sorts of social and ideological divides and contests going on, even within this very small country of Luxembourg. Okay, so if that was going on in Luxembourg, what about Belgium? How was Belgium affected by the international dynamics of this era after 1865? Well, in Belgium, internal forces and actors, as well as external forces, strained their position of neutrality. So by the 1860s, many Europeans all around the continent had the opportunity to go off and take part in and benefit from colonial adventures abroad. Belgium didn't have that. Belgium was a new state with no overseas empire. But many Belgians volunteered to join the Austrian Archduke Maximilian's venture to conquer and rule Mexico. So the country remained officially neutral, but there was this increasing interest in taking part in these foreign adventures of conquest and colonization. In 1870, Belgium came to be threatened by the Franco-Prussian War, which only very narrowly missed their borders, and they escaped the effects of combat. But the war was a reminder that the country was very vulnerable to conflicts between the great powers around them. And this led to a long campaign within the government to grow and reform and modernize the Belgian army to be an effective defensive force. And this still nonetheless threatened their traditional identity and policy of neutrality. And so there was widespread liberal and Catholic opposition to militarization in Belgium. But nonetheless, the government did institute conscription. And after 1900, the army grew several fold. 
and they were mostly stationed in defensive positions within the country, especially garrisoning a massive chain of highly modern, highly armed fortresses built along the southern and eastern borders, which came to be called the National Redoubt. Now, why is it that Belgium undertook this militarization campaign when they had so long benefited from peace and neutrality? Well, it was partly due to the rapid rise of Germany and increasing tensions between Germany, France, and Britain. It also was partly due to a major political and diplomatic crisis that had engulfed Belgium that was brought on by Belgium's one large overseas colonial venture in the so-called Congo Free State in Central Africa. So what was the Congo Free State? Well, as of 1880, Belgium still had no overseas presence. But in 1885, the Berlin Conference was held among the European powers to basically carve up Africa and come to diplomatic agreements about which country could claim and colonize different parts of Africa. And King Leopold II was personally determined to get involved in this so-called scramble for Africa. So he sent delegates to the Berlin Conference where he was able to obtain a so-called concession or sort of Europe-wide recognition of the Belgian crown's right to manage and control trade and taxation along the Congo River. So King Leopold II wanted to exploit this so-called concession and create a colony, not only for the benefit of Belgium, but under his personal control and for his personal enrichment. But in order to take advantage of this very far away and very difficult, rugged foreign territory, he needed heavy investment to fund this venture and to create military forces and trading outposts. And he knew that he couldn't get that kind of funding from the Belgian parliament, which by comparison, had really no interest in these sort of risky foreign adventures. And so instead, in 1892, the king formed the so-called Anglo-Belgian India Rubber Company, or which was also called by the acronym the Abir Company. And he recruited Belgian and British investors to invest in this company. But the largest share, almost a controlling share, was owned by King Leopold himself. The king then delegated this, the powers from this so-called concession, the power to control trade and taxation on the Congo, to the Abir Company. And the Abir Company then recruited mercenaries and adventurers to set up a string of fortresses and outposts along the rivers of Central Africa linked by a steamboat system. So this was in some respects a very unusual arrangement. This colony, which in a sort of ironic Orwellian turn of phrase was called the Congo Free State, this Congo Free State was not really a sovereign possession of the Belgian state, but it was more of a weird hybrid public-private partnership, you could call it, administered by a private for-profit corporation under the control of the king. And what this company then set up along the Congo was also not really trading posts. This is also kind of a euphemism or a misnomer like Congo Free State. They were really just armed military outposts where Belgian and other foreign officers extorted trade goods, firstly ivory and then later rubber, from the local population by threats and force 
including kidnapping, murder, torture, and mutilation. A common tactic used by the Abir company was to take some of the local people, especially women and children, prisoner, use them as hostages, and then force their family members to collect rubber. And if quotas were not met, the hostages would be killed or would have their hands cut off. And this sort of campaign of violence and theft through the Congo resulted in mass death. Some estimates are as high as 8 million people who died in the Congo by murder, disease, and starvation. So the Congo Free State Colony stands out and stood out at the time as remarkably brutal, even in the history of European colonialism. You know, there's, there's always violence and intimidation in foreign colonial rule. But the Congo Free State attracted particular attention and condemnation, even from many observers who were themselves imperialists, who still accepted colonization and empire as legitimate forms of governance. They nonetheless saw the Congo Free State as beyond the pale. And the relationship among the Congo Free State, Belgium, and Europe is very complicated and still somewhat mysterious. It's unclear, there's a great deal of disagreement about how much Belgians within the country knew about what was going on in the Congo Free State, how much knowledge of the brutality and the atrocities in the Congo returned back to Belgium. And it's still a matter of debate. It's clear that many Belgians must have known a great deal of what was going on. Some may have been unaware, but also clearly many of them were at best willfully oblivious. There was a great deal of denial. But one place where you can see a certain reflection uh, and awareness in Europe of the Congo Free State is in the famous short novel, Heart of Darkness, which is still one of the few ways that modern people today hear about and think about the Congo Free State and the atrocities there, because it's, it's a great work of literature and it's still read today. But it's easy to forget that that short novel by Joseph Conrad, who was a Polish worker and adventurer who was sent to the Congo Free State, it's easy to forget that that novel is not just a philosophical rumination on human nature or human evil or psychology. It is also a quite honest and in many respects accurate report of real events and of a real system of power that Conrad himself witnessed in a specific real place and time, the Congo Free State in the early 1890s. So it's clear that there were some people, Joseph Conrad and also early on Christian missionaries from Europe and the United States, who began to, to bear witness and to report back in Europe what was going on. But it didn't lead to a great deal of outrage or action until a British agent of the Abir Company, who was managing a lot of the accounts and the, the shipping of goods between Europe and the Congo, named Edie Morrell, simply began to put two and two together. He just observed that the vast bulk of the goods that they were sending to this supposed trading colony was guns and manacles, and that mainly what they were getting back was ivory. And he simply used basic logic and said, clearly what's happening here is that goods like ivory are being stolen by force from 
a terrorized and subjugated population. And so Edie Morrell was the first to sort of sound the alarm and in a concerted way try to organize opposition to stop these atrocities. And others that joined in included many of these Christian missionaries and writers, some of whom had witnessed the violence themselves, and then also radical dissidents and revolutionaries who were part of this sort of international radical ferment at the turn of the 20th century, prominently including the Irish nationalist revolutionary Roger Casement. And together, this sort of hodgepodge group of advocates formed the Congo Reform Movement, which in many ways you can say resembled the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. It was a sort of cobbled together coalition of religious reformers and evangelists and secular radicals and dissidents. And after 1900, this Congo reform movement was able to sway public opinion in Britain and eventually also in Belgium. And they made the Congo Free State into a major source of shame and embarrassment for the nation of Belgium. And many MPs in the Belgian parliament began to condemn the brutal reign of terror in the Congo Free State under the control of the company and the crown. But nonetheless, they were afraid to intervene. They were afraid to intervene directly because they had no constitutional jurisdiction over this colony. And intervention there might be seen as an attack on the crown's prerogatives, and hence it could lead to a constitutional crisis or even to civil war, depending on how the crown and its backers reacted. But nonetheless, by 1908, it was clear that Belgium was becoming a pariah state. And so finally, Parliament passed an act seizing ownership of the Congo Free State from the company, putting it under the control of a parliamentary commission, and it came to be renamed the Belgian Congo. So now the Belgian state was actually responsible for this colony. And the Congo continued to be run and exploited as a colony by Belgium with the sort of usual normal degree of force and repression that goes with colonialism. But the most egregious acts of brutality did diminish, and the new regime acknowledged at least some basic customary limits on the use of violence. So you could say this, the Belgian Congo went from being an outlier in the world of European colonialism to a more normal colony. So this crisis of the Congo Free State had embarrassed Belgium and undermined its image as a peaceable, neutral state. And it also came amidst a time of high tensions between European powers and clashes and disputes over Germany's role in the international system. So there was basically this period of heightened tensions from about 1904 to 1911. And this Congo reform movement came to its height right in the middle of that period. And so together, these two factors intensified the demand for military reform to prepare Belgium to protect itself in case it lost its standing and its security as a neutral state. And so the following year in 1909, the parliament passed a universal compulsory military service law, which required all adult men to serve eight years of active military duty. And the Belgian army swelled to over 100,000 men, which was still small compared to the great powers like France or Germany, but it was unprecedented 
as a major military force for Belgium. And this was the basic state of affairs then in 1914, when Germany for the first time openly violated the neutrality of both Luxembourg and Belgium when they moved troops into both countries and demanded to be allowed passage through them to attack France. And it was under these conditions that each country had to decide whether to acquiesce in Germany's demands or to refuse them. But that all, of course, only happened after the so-called July Crisis and the beginning of the war in Eastern Europe. But in order to understand why Germany made this demand in the first place and in effect then spread the war for the first time to the Western Front, we have to understand the role and importance of the last great power on the European continent, which we haven't discussed yet, which is France. So hopefully that will be coming soon. But in closing, as I said, this lecture was brought to you by the letter M. And so I would like to thank now all of my current active patrons whose names begin with M. Magnus Fredriksen, Maximilian de Lugoge, Mallory Boyink, Margaret Maketo, Marich N., Marie-Louise Wayhill, Marios K., Mark Peregrine, Marcus Puskar, Matthew Kwok, Maya, Media Roots Radio with Abby and Robbie Martin, Michael Biagetti, Michael De Lucia, Michael Greenberg, Michael O'Connor, Michael Sokolovsky, Michelle Stone, Mike, Mike Coffey, Mike Gallagher, Mike Gervich, Mike Sheketov, Milan Pandurov, Molly Roth, Monica Kuniyoshi, Monroe Labuis, and Mop. Thank you.